This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about polysubstance disorder in patients who are receiving buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. Hi, Sonia. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to record this episode. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. What have you been thinking about this week in addiction medicine? Well, I want to give a shout out to the Society of Hospital Medicine. They put out a consensus statement in July about treating opioid use disorder in the hospital, and it is awesome. They included 10 key recommendations, and the most important ones are to offer buprenorphine or methadone as first-line treatment for opioid withdrawal in the hospital, obtain an X waiver so you can prescribe buprenorphine at hospital discharge, and make sure that you are discharging patients with opioid use disorder treatment in place, be that to an inpatient facility or an outpatient treatment program. This is all stuff that should be standard of care, and it is so great to see it clearly spelled out and recommended by one of our most important medical societies. So thank you again, Society of Hospital Medicine. I will put a link in the show notes to their consensus statement. And I just really, I am so happy to see it because I'm about to start a road show to all of the community hospitals at St. Max's doing a talk on treating opioid use disorder in the hospital. So this consensus statement just really backs up everything that we were going to present. And yeah, I'm just I'm just so happy to see it. John, you do a lot more inpatient work than I do. Do you feel that our patients with opioid use disorder get standard of care treatment in the hospital? At my hospital, I think they do. I mean, I, I work at the mothership at St. Max's. So I think we have done a really good job in terms of kind of a lot of those uh, recommendations we've kind of already embraced um, from the ER linking people uh, with opioid use disorder into treatment and providing bridge scripts to get them to follow-up appointments. We have an inpatient consult service uh, for buprenorphine, and we will also link people to multiple different care organizations or link them into an inpatient treatment stay if that's the way they'd like to pursue their recovery. So I think um, at least where I'm at right now, I, I think we're actually maybe not the most progressive since I think a lot of hospitals are doing this, but I think that we're kind of right there with a lot of these recommendations. And I think from a care perspective and also from a value perspective, I mean, patients that you link into care, they do better, right? Your, your severe skin and soft tissue infections and your endocarditis don't leave AMA and then come back in in a more severe state requiring longer hospitalizations. It's better for the patients, lower mortality rate. They do better they feel that they're cared for. And a lot of times when they're kind of in withdrawal, what they're thinking about is drugs. They're not thinking about their their life-threatening medical condition. So I think, you know, it's a savings thing as well and kind of salvage for this group of patients. So I think it's an awesome thing. I was pretty happy. I think you guys at the mothership who do the buprenorphine consult service have done a great job because I was talking to the internal medicine residents yesterday and I said, what would you guys do if you had a patient with opiate withdrawal in the hospital. And they kind of said in unison, call the buprenorphine consult service. I was like, hey, great work. But it's a challenge at our smaller hospitals who don't have a buprenorphine consult service, don't have behavioral health that they can consult, don't have ex waiver providers in the community who they can refer to. So I think this consensus statement will just back up some of those providers who are working a little more on their own maybe out in the sticks a little bit and have to do things on their own. And it will just give them, it'll give them guidelines as to what would be the best treatment for these patients. Yeah, I agree. It's a great thing. 
So John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? Well, you know, I was thinking actually I had a very interesting case in, in my clinic this week. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on. Love to hear it. So I have a patient that uh, came to see me. He was from a prison release. And at one point he was on Supplicate, was doing very well, transitioned over to Suboxone. And he was really struggling. So he wanted to go back on to Supplicate. And we made arrangements for him to get this done. And he got his first Supplicate injection, was doing well. Um, and then he got his blood work done, somewhat delayed. And he had a very kind of pronounced LFT elevation and hepatitis C. Oh, no. And I've, I know. And I have seen, you know, oftentimes in the adverse effects, they do talk about LFT elevation as a possibility with buprenorphine. Although I'll be honest, I don't routinely see that uh, with the oral formulation. And I was kind of going back and forth about uh, what to do with this patient who, thankfully, his LFTs did trend back down towards a normal range. But um, I didn't realize in the monograph from the manufacturer, they, they actually talk about excising that the depot injection afterwards. And I've never heard of that being done before or had to do that, thankfully. But is that something you've even seen done or heard about? No. Oh, gosh. I can't even imagine going in there with a scalpel to try to cut out the tissue where the depot injection is. I mean, I guess in a case of true life-threatening toxicity, you could do that. But, you know, so often we get elevated LFTs. And while the numbers might look a little uncomfortable, the patient rarely suffers anything bad. So gosh, if anybody, any of our listeners has ever done that, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. I thought it was kind of drastic, but I never even heard of that before, but I I guess it makes sense because it does kind of form into that kind of like, you know, it's not a tissue. It's more like a gelatinous, like a a hard marble depot. I've, I've never done that. And you're right. Thankfully, you know, he was hepatitis C. The numbers were elevated, but his liver fibrosis was relatively low and his FIB4 score was low. And so, you know, he child's class PUA. He didn't really have like severe liver dysfunction, but certainly it was enough to kind of make me second guess. And then I thought about, you know, a lot of times getting blood work done from my substance use patients is very difficult. In the future, am I going to maybe ask them to do that ahead of time more so? That might just be future food for thought, so I don't have to cross that bridge. Yeah. For buprenorphine, I usually order LFTs after the patient's been in treatment a month or two just to see if it's having any effect, but with oral buprenorphine, I don't think I've ever found anybody with significantly elevated LFTs, but that's an interesting case. I wonder, do you know how common it is to have that kind of hepatitis with Sublocade? Well, he has hepatitis C too, so I'm not sure what, what chicken or the egg, but you know, it is kind of a relative uh, contraindication. So I have to look into that further, but I thought it was interesting. And certainly I was uh, sweating a little bit about where I was going to go with that. Well, I'm glad he's all right. So did he end up going back on buprenorphine oral? We put him back on oral buprenorphine. We made a mutual decision. I kind of gave him the option of, you know, we could watch it very, very closely and excise it if, you know, it went up any further or we could do oral. And he actually kind of agreed just to switch back to the oral. We're going to treat his hepatitis C and then circle back around with hopefully some some better LFTs. Well, I hope he does all right. I'm glad he has you in his corner. Yeah. And if he needs that excised, I'll send him your way. So one small anecdote. You know, I work in primary care. We do a number of procedures, you know, kind of small scale procedures. But I once had a patient and, and I do basic stuff. I had a patient come to the window and had something. I don't even remember what it was, some cyst or something he wanted removed. And he told the lady at the front window, I'm going to see Dr. Del Tredici. I heard she'll cut anything. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I was like, gosh, how did I get that reputation out in the community? What have I been doing? Yeah, wow. I haven't heard that since. I don't know. That's very interesting. (laughs) But maybe I'll take a crack at your depot buprenorphine gel. If need be. I don't know. Makes you anxious. All right. Well, let me get to talking about this article. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think it's a it's a really common kind of conundrum we all see in the office. Yeah, I was happy to see it. So the title of this article is Comparative Effectiveness Associated with Buprenorphine and Naltrexone in Opioid Use Disorder and Co-occurring Polysubstance Use. It was published in JAMA Network Open and We just see a lot of patients with polysubstance use disorder in our practice. Most patients who we see are coming to us primarily for opioid use disorder because that's the one where we have the tools to make the most difference, but they are almost always using multiple substances. And sometimes they can get the opioid use disorder under control, but not the other substances. So a few key facts about polysubstance use disorder. One, like I said, polysubstance use is prevalent. And there is a lack of research regarding treatment outcomes specifically designed for this population. And if you put yourself in a researcher's shoes, of course, you don't want to study a population that has like six different substance use disorders, all of them to varying degrees. You know, researchers like patients who have a single disease so they can get cleaner data and ask cleaner questions. Second fact, there is a higher rate of treatment discontinuation and overdose in patients with polysubstance use disorder and a lower rate of treatment initiation in the first place. So they don't do as well in treatment, they have more overdose, and they don't enter treatment at the same rate as people without polysubstance use disorder. And then finally, although ASAM recommends that co-occurring substance use disorder should not result in discontinuation of buprenorphine treatment, many buprenorphine programs require abstinence from other substances And polysubstance use disorder remains a common reason patients are excluded from treatment. So a lot of patients, while they manage to stay off illicit opiates, they continue to use other substances, cocaine, amphetamines, marijuana, alcohol, and that gets them discharged from buprenorphine treatment, and that leads to worse outcomes. So John, do you see a lot of patients with polysubstance use disorder? Yeah, I'd say a very large percentage of patients at this point are polysubstance use. How do you see them doing in treatment? variable. I think that some do really well and, and some kind of struggle a little bit more. I think, that, you know, the, the article kind of strikes a nerve because I feel like, early, well, not strikes a nerve, but it kind of takes a look in the mirror. I feel like early on in, in kind of treating people with polysubstance use, I used to feel like you had to be clean from everything. And, and now I'm kind of looking at like a silo, something, you know, each one's different. And certainly I think that uh, oftentimes, you know, we can control the opioid use and there might be kind of intermittent use of other substances in between. Yeah, that was true for me too. Earlier on in my addiction practice, I worked with a community organization to provide recovery support that had an abstinence only other than buprenorphine model. And so patients who continued to relapse using other drugs were eventually discharged from treatment. And at the time, I didn't think that it was so unusual. But now that I know more and we've seen the escalation of overdoses with fentanyl, now we no longer discharge patients from treatment because they are unable to stop using all drugs. We really focus on the opioids, getting people off them, and we try to treat the other substance use disorders as a separate disease. And of course, it's not totally separate. They are related, but we certainly don't discharge anyone from treatment because they can't 
stay off other drugs. I think that sometimes, though, we, we use the term polysubstance, and I think often we look at it from like an opioid use disorder lens. I do sometimes, though, think like, what's the prime substance? Like, what is their true kind of uh, the one causing the most morbidity in their life and the most affecting their life? And I think often they'll be there for buprenorphine, but it actually might be one of the other ones. So I think that, you know, tailoring a treatment plan to that, including that, is really important. Yeah. And there's this concept of substance of choice as well. Actually, I had a conversation with a patient in the office today, and she was doing well from an opioid use disorder perspective, but then was drinking alcohol, but drinking alcohol in a very reasonable and moderate way, you know, two drinks on a weekend day, went out with friends and not drinking otherwise. And to me, that's a very reasonable and moderate amount of alcohol. And she said she never had a problem with alcohol. And if she had been a patient earlier of mine, when I was connected to this other program, that would have gotten her, you know, discharged from treatment. So I'm kind of glad I don't, I'm not as rigid anymore. I feel like it gives people a little more flexibility. So let's talk about the clinical question in this paper. So to summarize the clinical question, this article wants to compare patients with opioid use disorder who received buprenorphine and naltrexone and or actually buprenorphine or naltrexone to those who did not receive any medications for opioid use disorder and look at the outcomes in two subgroups of patients, those with opiate use disorder alone and those with opiate use disorder plus polysubstance use disorder. So again, we are looking at patients who got medication and those who didn't, and then we're looking at the subgroups of with and without polysubstance use disorder. So who is in this study? This was a claims data study using the IBM Market Scan database. So this is a huge database, including commercial insurance and Medicaid data. The study was done from 2011 to 2016, so pre-COVID, pre-fentanyl. And it included everyone in the database age 12 to 64 with a primary diagnosis of opioid use disorder and who was seeking treatment. If you look at the demographics of people in this study, mean age was 33, 51% were men, 57% received psychosocial treatment without medication for opioid use disorder, 35% had Medicaid, 83% were white. 41% had a mood disorder, and 89% had a Charleston comorbidity index of zero, meaning that they were in general good health. So I know that was kind of a list of demographics. So just to summarize it, this was 33-year-old people, men and women, and only 43% of them received medication for their opioid use disorder. They were mostly white, about half had a mood disorder, and they were in general good physical health. If you look at the entire population, because they did then look at substance use disorder, overall, 17% had alcohol use disorder, 15% had a stimulant use disorder, and 9% had a sedative use disorder. So the majority of the patients did not have polysubstance use disorder. It was a smaller subset. Among those with the polysubstance use, most of it was alcohol, 65%, 55% used stimulants, and 36% used sedatives. One interesting note is that they excluded methadone recipients. Since methadone comes with additional monitoring and social support, that makes it difficult to directly compare treatment outcomes between methadone and buprenorphine. So the interventions, that's who was in the study. Again, big market claims data study of patients seeking opioid use disorder. 
The intervention was treatment for opioid use disorder with medication, and they used either buprenorphine or naltrexone, depot and oral. And it was compared to patients who received only psychosocial treatment. And finally, the outcomes. The outcomes were an association between polysubstance use disorder and the type of treatment received. And the second outcome was drug-related poisonings, i.e. mostly overdoses, on days with and without medication for opioid use disorder prescriptions in all the different subgroups. So again, I'm going to summarize one more time because this is kind of complicated, this study. Are drug-related poisonings different in patients with opioid use disorder who receive buprenorphine or naltrexone compared to those who did not receive any medications for opioid use disorder, especially in the subgroups with polysubstance use disorder? So, John, what do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right, to see kind of not only kind of what the outcomes are, but I think it's a good question, like look in the mirror, like we said earlier, what are we offering these people? Right. I mean, it's surprising to me that such a small group received medication. Right now, medication is the standard of care, but I guess 2011 to 2016, it was not as available. Another interesting thing is that Depot Naltrexone came on the market, I think, in 2011. And so it was not used very much in the study. It was a new medication. I remember when it came on the market, it was extremely expensive, not necessarily available to the patients in this study. So next thing we want to ask ourselves is, is this trial valid? So first, the setup. It was an observational comparative effectiveness study using a case crossover design with each individual serving as their own control. This isn't quite as good as a randomized controlled trial, but those are hard to do in this population of patients with opioid use disorder. It uses insurance claim data from the market scan database, which can be unreliable. You know, claims data is only as reliable as the physicians who enter those ICD-10 codes in the first place. Also, prescription claims do not necessarily represent consumption of study medication. It just represents filling study prescription. And finally, the market scan database looks only at commercial insurance and Medicaid. It doesn't include Medicare, patients over 65, and doesn't include self-pay patients. On the plus side, this was large. It had 179,000 patients, 47 plus thousand had co-occurring substance use disorder, and 12,400 had a drug-related poisoning. So a ton of events in this study. It was done 2011 to 2016, which was when extended release naltrexone first became available. But as I said, it was a newer drug, so it wasn't used as consistently. Also, this time period predates the surge in synthetic opioid use and fentanyl use. So it makes me think that this data might be less relevant today. Today, patients might do worse without buprenorphine and psychosocial treatment might be less effective. And I think that's what we're seeing out in the population. Psychosocial treatment alone is less effective than treatment with medication. They did some sensitivity analyses with one, excluding patients with alcohol use disorder, given the dual indication of naltrexone for both alcohol and opiate use disorder. And they also did two analyses looking at positive and negative control, they call it, using statins as a positive control and benzodiazepines as a negative control. And that's just to see if patients who adhere to study treatment, participate in treatment, are somehow healthier at baseline, like they would be more likely to take their statin and they might be more likely to pay attention to their doctor and take their buprenorphine. Finally, there were a ton of potential unmeasured co-founders in the group who received medication for opioid use disorder compared to the people who did not. Because of course, this is just claims data, so it didn't randomize people to receive medication or not. And patients who received medication were possibly sicker, 
or maybe less sick, maybe more able to comply with treatment, but they weren't necessarily the same as patients who didn't receive medication. It was funded by the NIH, which I think was unlikely to cause bias. And so overall, I thought this was a valid study, especially if you're careful to acknowledge the limitations of research done from insurance databases. What do you think? Do you think this was a good study? Yeah, it seems really interesting. I, I think a couple of things that kind of you said that really stand out to me um, are uh, one is uh, the fact that, you know, as it was, cause it was claims data, that it was kind of dispense medication, not necessarily consume medication. And especially, I think, with like the extended release naltrexone, I have a fridge full of this at the office of patients that come in. They want it. You have to go through a specialty pharmacy. It comes to the office and they never come back. So I wonder how much of that was actually uh, utilized in the study. And I think it was interesting. I certainly see this kind of statin as the positive control being used a lot. It is interesting, though, in a study of, of, of people age 33 on average, like how many people would have a, an indication for a statin or really how much that really could, was a great control here in this particular study with a younger age population. I don't know what would be an equivalent positive control in population average age 33. Receipt of the seasonal influenza vaccine. Yeah, perfect. That's the family doctor and you talking. So let's talk about the results. The first question the study answers is which treatment the subgroup with and without polysubstance use got. So they were seeing if patients with polysubstance use disorder were given the same treatment as patients with opiate use disorder alone. So the patients with polysubstance use were much less likely to be given medication. Overall, 47% of the patients with opiate use disorder alone got medication and only 30% of patients with polysubstance use got medication. They were more likely, though, to receive naltrexone than the patients with opiate use disorder alone. However, the number of patients overall who received naltrexone was very low. Only 2% got the deeper naltrexone and about 4% got oral naltrexone in the study overall. So really not used very much. John, why do you think so many fewer patients received buprenorphine in the polysubstance use disorder group? I think it's probably a combination of, of probably provider bias. You know, I think that if there's polysubstance going on, we kind of view that as, as less successful. And I think that sometimes people feel more hesitant to prescribe buprenorphine. I also think kind of maybe assuming best intent, minus the fact that they kind of did adjudicate this, if the primary, the most common comorbid uh, polysubstance disorder was alcohol use disorder. So I do think that the dual diagnosis or the dual use of that medication in that population probably makes it appealing a little bit to, to a provider for selection. Yeah, I think that's right. Although there was so little of it used, I'm not sure it really made up the whole difference. My theory is that in 2011, you know, especially back then, like you said, the insistence on total abstinence made patients with polysubstance use disorder be perceived as worst candidates for treatment with buprenorphine. The second question the study addresses is the odds of opiate use disorder medication initiation in patients with polysubstance use compared to patients with opiate use disorder alone. So basically, patients with polysubstance use were half as likely to get buprenorphine as patients with opiate use disorder alone. They were more likely to receive naltrexone. They were more than twice as likely to receive oral naltrexone as patients with opioid use disorder alone. Also, as you might expect, patients with co-occurring alcohol and opioid use disorder were more likely to be treated with naltrexone, presumably given its dual indication for the two diseases. So again, that's just the same answer put in a different way. Third question is overdoses. So they use the phrase drug-related poisonings, and I think that's an artifact of the ICD-10 codes because an overdose is calculated as a poisoning, but we have to really acknowledge the limitations of this ICD-10 code. Actually, a new paper just came out, and I'll 
put a link in our show notes showing how the standard ICD-10 codes that we do a lot of research on are not very sensitive or specific for capturing overdoses. The ER doctor has to code the opioid overdose as the primary reason the patient is in the OR. So that's one problem. I mean, in the ER. The second problem is that drug-related poisonings include things like intractable constipation, nausea and vomiting, just confusion or obtundation. Those would all be classified as poisonings as well, even though they're not really overdoses. So the data may not be entirely accurate, but that's why we say poisonings and not overdoses because it's an artifact of the data collection. So what I thought was most interesting about this data on overdoses and poisonings is that for patients with polysubstance use disorder, they had fewer poisonings when they were on buprenorphine and diplonaltrexone, but not on oral naltrexone. This association held for patients with alcohol use disorder, stimulant use disorder, and patients with opioid use disorder alone. The oral naltrexone had no protective effect, and in the case of opioid use disorder alone, the trend was towards more overdoses and poisonings, not less. So basically, the oral naltrexone looked like it was causing harm, whereas the other medications looked like they were preventing overdoses. Bottom line, buprenorphine works best to prevent poisonings, followed by diplonaltrexone, and oral naltrexone is not helpful at all at preventing overdose and may even be harmful. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I think that's somewhat consistent with kind of earlier studies too about oral naltrexone for opioid use disorder. And I, I think that, you know, as many people listening know, it's the concern there is loss tolerance and medication adherence with time. I'd be interested even to see that, you know, if the study kind of, if this extended out even further, the, the rate of drug-related poisonings even in the depot naltrexone group, because at some point I'm sure they probably discontinued treatment. It was higher long-term. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see that. Yeah. It's it's a little scary. I mean, I do prescribe oral naltrexone, usually only if the patient requests it. But looking at this data makes me feel like I might actually be hurting people. And I'm wondering if I need to be a little more, you know, or less free with it, if I need to be a little more negative, if someone requests that medication. How often do you get patients requesting that for opioid use disorder? Not often, but I do have people who are interested in treatment. It's usually people who aren't on treatment. They're interested in the options. They hear about naltrexone, buprenorphine, and they're just unsure. And they've heard that maybe they could try the pill as a way to see if the depot naltrexone would work for them or if they'd have side Mm -hmm. effects. They're uncomfortable getting a depot injection four weeks of a medicine they've never tried in case they have side effects. You're kind of stuck with it for the whole month. Yeah. So that's what I see. But I haven't had anybody request it in a while. At this point, most people are requesting buprenorphine. Yeah, I think that's probably about right for me too. So final question answered in this study is the type of overdoses and poisonings. So opioid versus non-opioid poisonings. So the final set of results is whether there is any protective effect of medications based on the type of poisoning. I had to delve into the supplemental appendix for this one. Buprenorphine and diplonaltrexone were both protective against opioid poisonings in both groups, but buprenorphine only was protective against other drug poisonings in both groups. So diplonaltrexone did not help against stimulant overdose, cocaine overdose, that kind of thing. Like the earlier set of results, oral naltrexone showed a trend towards more poisonings, although the confidence interval did cross one, so it's a non-significant trend. So John, why do you think buprenorphine would prevent poisonings from drugs that are not opioids? 
I mean, I, I guess my only kind of thought here would be kind of, you know, if they're using polysubstance, would it be contributory or be multifactorial? Especially like you think of like alcohol, CNS, depressant, sedative hypnotics was the other one that looked at CNS depressant. Could they be contributory and that, that could be possibly treating the one as preventing the synergistic effect of the two? Yeah, I mean, many overdoses are multiple drugs. So if it keeps people off the opioids, you'd be less likely to have a poisoning from opioids plus other drugs. I also find some of my patients that even though the buprenorphine doesn't treat, let's say the big one I'm seeing in my practice is methamphetamine use. You know, buprenorphine doesn't treat methamphetamine use disorder, but my patients are sometimes so out of control with their opiate use disorder. And once they can get that under control, they're able to address the methamphetamine use disorder in a more organized and successful way. So while it doesn't directly treat the cravings, it does stabilize people's lives. And then I think they can address all their other substance use and non-substance use related issues. Yeah. And I think in methamphetamine particularly, I, I, I feel like a lot of patients that use that for polysubstance in my experience have been they're kind of treating the side effects of the other one with the other because the, the stimulant versus the, the depressant there. So I think that makes a lot of sense, right? They probably don't feel the need to use it as often to stay awake and to, to do their job and to, to be functional. Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely seen that with my people. So that's a lot of results. I'm just going to summarize one more time. Buprenorphine is good at preventing poisonings with opioids and non-opioid drugs. Oral naltrexone is not good, and hardly anyone used depot naltrexone, and when they did, it worked okay, but not as good as buprenorphine. So will these results help me in patient care? So I think they will. The majority of patients in the study did not receive medication for opioid use disorder. The patients with polysubstance use were less likely to start medication than those with opiate use disorder alone, but you could see that the opiate use disorder was better if they were treated with medication, whether or not they had polysubstance use. As for the poisonings, again, buprenorphine was protective for patients with and without polysubstance use disorder. So I really feel like it is safest to start my patients on buprenorphine, even if they have polysubstance use disorder. I'll continue personally to recommend buprenorphine to my patients in this setting. I'll also recommend naltrexone for patients who prefer it. The study didn't say that it didn't work. It just was such a small proportion of the overall treatments that I don't feel the data is very strong. I will, like we said, be less likely to use oral naltrexone unless the patient has a very compelling reason for choosing that treatment. And that's my summary. What do you think? Any final thoughts? You know, I, the one thing when I read this study, I actually kind of felt very optimistic about, you know, this is 2011 to 2016. I just think that a lot of the stuff in this study, the fact that, you know, such a large percentage of people were treated with only uh, psychotherapy and weren't offered medication. I think that that's really not where we're at today. I think that's a lot of evolution as a group. Like we've all grown over that past decade till now. So I think it actually kind of left me feeling kind of optimistic about treatment as we move forward. We've grown, but I think it's also a little sad because we've grown in response to all the overdoses from synthetic opioids. You know, I think before the introduction of fentanyl, there was not so much need for medication. I think these psychosocial interventions were more effective. And so we've had to respond to this overdose crisis as well by really, really promoting medication. And I feel a little, I'm glad we were, we've been able to adjust, but I feel a little sad 
that that's the reason. Wow. We look at this from different sides. Interesting. We got glass half full and glass half empty. <laughs> well, makes sense. The family doctor and the internist. <laughs> Are internists pessimistic? I don't know. Maybe compare family doctors though. They're all like happy go lucky for Pretty easygoing folks. Internists are nice people too. You guys are a little more chill though. I will admit that. It's all the ICU time you guys do in residency at Scar Show. <laughs> Probably true. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation. And we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the article included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. If you want to hear your comments in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. The audio editing was by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the article's review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.